Praise the Lord. This is Andrew Womack, and this is our fourth and final teaching in a series on how to deal with grief. And I've already covered a lot of material. I just encourage anyone who's getting this individual teaching and hasn't listened to the prior three teachings I've given on this that you really do need to listen to that for this to have uh, the context that it should. Uh, We've already dealt with about how that the Holy Ghost comforts us in all of our uh, tribulation and uh, how that we need to recognize our situation isn't unique. We can get a lot of comfort from other people and seeing how they've dealt with similar type things. And as they go on with their life, it builds hope in us. And so we talked about that. We also talked about how that everything, everything that uh, happens to us, it causes grief in this life is only temporary. And I believe that you need to really remember that. I mean, even in this life, things usually pass away and fade away and uh, we get over it. But if things happen that are so tragic that it lasts an entire lifetime here, well, our lifetime is just like the snap of a fingers compared to the time that we are going to spend in eternity. And if you begin to start thinking about eternity and put it into that perspective, then it makes any situation bearable. We also spent a lot of time talking about how that God is not the source of our tragic events. God does not bring evil upon us so that something good can come out of it. No, God can bring something good out of evil, but God does not bring evil to produce good. And I consider that to be one of the most important things to learn. Maybe in the short term you can get some satisfaction and some relief thinking that there's some divine wisdom in the tragedy that's hit you. But in the long term, it's going, to make, it's going to hinder your relationship with God if you think that God is the one who's killing people, punishing you, doing things like this. It's going to hinder your intimacy and your relationship with God. And, and the worst thing about it all is that it's just not true. It's not what the Word of God teaches. So we've already covered that. What I want to do on this uh, teaching is to share with you that the source of all grief is actually our own self-consciousness, self-centeredness. And you know, everything else that I've said has, in my estimation, has been edifying. It's been encouraging. And um, some people may disagree with that. I have been criticized for being too blunt. But you know, it's, it's just the truth that sets me free. I don't care what the truth is. I don't care if it makes me look bad. Uh, I want to know the truth, and the truth sets me free, and so I tend to minister that way sometimes. But I really believe that the things I've said have been encouraging. This teaching about our own self-centeredness and about dying to ourself and not being so promoting of self, some people would consider this to be kind of a hard teaching. And yet, as I travel the country and minister to people, Uh, It is not unusual for me to get 80 or 90% of the people who listen to this message to stand up and to confess that they have been totally absorbed with just themselves, self-centered. I believe that it is a blight that happens to all humans because we are born self-centered and uh, we have to grow out of that and it doesn't happen naturally. I mean, God's Word teaches us, and it's something that has to happen. It can really only happen through a miracle of God. And so it is It is normal to all human beings, I believe, but especially in the Western culture where we have prosperity 
and we have indulged ourselves. Uh, some people consider it just a right to be able to get whatever you want. And then you add to that psychology and how that it goes out of its way not to ever place any blame on the individual, but one of the uh, you know planks that's in the uh, uh, theology, if you want to call it that, of psychology is that it shifts blame to everybody else. It's not your fault. No one assumes responsibility for their own actions, but we blame anybody and everybody else, society and, and other things, hormones, chemicals. We just are always looking for some reason why we are not responsible for the weirdness and the shame and the things that happen in our life. And so because of these kind of things, I believe that a self-centeredness and a love and an indulgence of self has been uh, exasperated. It's been blown out of proportion in our society. And this is something that when I minister on it, huge numbers of people respond to this. So I wanted to include this in this series about how to deal with grief. And at first, this may sound um, like it's not going to be encouraging, but if you will open up your heart and listen to what I'm trying to get across right here, I believe that this will really, really help you. So let me just say that the source of all of our grief actually comes from a self-love, a self-centeredness. Going back to the very first point I made in this four teaching series, I said that the first thing that has to happen is you have to discern whether you have a legitimate reason to be grieving or not. There are some things, the loss of a loved one and certain things that you know, are legitimate reasons to grieve. The actual word grief just means an extreme sadness. And uh, there are extreme sadnesses that happen over a number of different things. And uh, there are legitimate reasons. But I have also dealt with a lot of people who grieve over things that they shouldn't be grieving over. And you know why? It's because they are so self-centered. I remember one of my Bible college students came into me one Monday morning. And this guy had had a history of mental problems. And so, I mean, I it seemed like he always had something that was just, you know, a crisis situation. And he came in to me and he was crying and he, he says, I've just got to have help. And so I said, what happened this time? Because he was always, you know, in some crisis situation. And he began to cry and tell me that at church on Sunday, he really wanted to hear the word of God. But two women sat in front of him in church and talked and laughed all the way through it and distracted him, and he just had the devil steal the word from him. And he was he was so upset and grief-stricken over this thing. And I tell you what, I just, uh, I kind of exploded on this guy. You know, I don't know if I'm always responding correctly or not, but I mean, I wanted to drop kick him right out of my office. I had had two friends call me that morning one had lost his wife. They'd been married for over 50 years. Actually, I called him. Just I'd heard about it. And he was just praising God and saying, God is such a good God. Man, we had a great life together. And he was praising God and just shouting the victory. Here's this guy that um, had had two women talking in front of him. And it had just depressed him. And he was ready to quit because he wasn't able to hear the word. I told him, I said, why didn't you get up and move? And he said, oh, I never thought of that. And, and you know what? It's in comparison. Here's somebody who had just lost their wife of 50 years, and they were praising God. Here's another person. And they had some people whispering in front of him in church, and he was ready to just quit and throw in the towel. 
You know what? The reason that that guy was so depressed and discouraged over this is because he was so self-centered. All he could think about was himself. All he could think about. I mean, if he had just gotten up and moved and and have gotten out of those people's way. But when you get into this self-centeredness, it paralyzes you. It destroys logic. And I've had people come up in my prayer lines before crying, talking about how depressed and how discouraged they are. And I ask them what the problem is so that I can pray for them. And there have been some people tell me their problems that it's all I can do to keep from laughing at them. I mean, it's like, is this it? This is as bad as it gets? Man, I've had things worse than that happen to me on my good days. And yet I have some people that their capacity to handle problems is next to nothing. And the reason for it is self-centeredness because they love themselves because they live in a world of their own. Now, those are extremes, and those are talking about people that actually aren't justified to have grief. It's just that their self is so touchy. They are so easily offended that they have grief in their life. But even people who have legitimate reasons to grieve, I can tell you that it is always made worse if we are a self-centered person. And so therefore, even if you don't have a legitimate reason to have grief in your life, this teaching will help you to sort that out and to deal with it. And you'll find out a lot of the things that are grieving you are just happening because you haven't died to yourself, because you are still so in love with yourself. There are some people with legitimate reasons to grieve, but even in those situations, you can minimize the grief. You can diminish the grief if you would just learn this lesson about yielding yourself to God to where yourself is not the most important person in this universe. Let me use a passage of Scripture that we've already been talking about. If you'll remember, uh, I talked from John chapter 14, 15, and 16. This was Jesus speaking to his disciples the night before his crucifixion. And he was telling them in verse 1, Let not your heart be troubled. And we talked about this that this was the night before the worst thing that would happen to them in their entire life. Most people would feel that they not only are justified in grieving, but they would have felt that they were absolutely in denial if they didn't grieve. And yet the Lord told them, let not your heart be troubled. And then he repeated that down here in verse 27. He says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. So he repeated this warning. There is no way that anybody can read this and see that God was saying, well, I understand you should be grief stricken. You should uh, be terrified during this period of time and there's nothing I can do. You just have to go through it. No, the Lord told them what they needed to know to be able to maintain their joy and their steadfastness and their victory even in between the crucifixion and the resurrection. If they would have understood what he was saying, then they could have operated in joy. And just as a little P.S. here, I have a 16-tape album that covers John 14, 15, and 16 about how to deal with crisis situations in your life which the disciples were going through. So the Lord said, don't be afraid. Don't let your heart be troubled in verse 1 and verse 27. And then look at this in John chapter 14, verse 28. He says, you have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. 
If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said I go unto the Father. For my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it come to pass that when it is come to pass, you might believe. Now here's Jesus saying that if you loved me, you would rejoice at what I'm saying. Now again, you've got to get the context of this. Jesus is talking to his disciples the night before his crucifixion. We know that the disciples just panicked. We have a a detailed account of Peter and how that Peter lingered around the house of Caiaphas and the judgment hall of Herod and that he was exposed and said this is also one of his disciples and he was so terrified that he denied it three times and the third time he began to swear with an oath and and curse that he was not one of the disciples of Jesus and then the uh, the rooster crowed and immediately the Lord turned and looked at him and and we know the kind of grief that Peter went through but the scripture says that all of his disciples forsook him and fled this was a terrifying time to not where not only was Jesus going to be crucified, but it looks like that their life was on the line too. And in the midst of all of this, he had told them 14 times prior to his crucifixion that he would be crucified. He didn't always specify that it was crucifixion, but he did prophesy that he would die and that he would raise uh, rise again on the third day. About half of those 14 predictions about his death also included his resurrection. But he made it very clear that you are going to sorrow like the world, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. And he had given them the information that if they would have understood and believed this, it would have kept them from experiencing the depths of grief that they did. Now, it certainly would have been proper once you see Jesus crucified and him suffer. It would have been proper to have grief but not a grief that was hopeless, not a grief that it looked like this was it, it was over, Jesus failed. All of the thoughts that would have come from those kind of things could have been avoided if they would have understood his prophecies about rising from the dead. You know, the only people who really understood and remembered his prophecies about the resurrection were the scribes and the Pharisees because they went to Herod or Pilate and said, we remember that this deceiver said that he would rise again on the third day. And so they uh, got a watch of soldiers, 16 soldiers, to come guard the tomb. And so the scribes and the Pharisees actually remembered the prophecies about Jesus' resurrection better than his disciples did. The disciples were totally overwhelmed when they heard of the resurrection. They had forgotten these things. And, you know, this happens when you deal with grief, that often... I've already dealt with this. We get to where we are so focused on our individual situation, we forget what was in the past. We forget what's in the future. We lose our perspective, and we forget the positive things that have happened and stuff, and this is exactly what happened to the disciples. So they were going through this terrible time. They were just beginning to enter into this time when we know from experience that they all basically folded and ran. And yet Jesus was telling them that if you loved me, you would not have that reaction, but you would actually rejoice. Now, most people just think this is absolutely absurd. No way, no way could anybody rejoice at seeing the crucifixion of Jesus. Anybody who loved Jesus, how could they rejoice at this? Well, here's the logic. Jesus is saying that if you loved me, I'm going to put in here that if you loved me more than you loved yourself, 
then you could rejoice because even if they didn't understand the prophecies of the resurrection, they should have, but even if they didn't, if they had a concept of heaven and hell at all, which certainly that was in the Jewish mentality, and if they understood that after death a person doesn't cease to exist, but they either go into the presence of God or they go into the presence of the devil, separation from God, which I know that they had that. Jesus taught on that often, and they accepted that. If they had that concept, they could have looked at things this way. They could have said, well, at least Jesus, if there was ever a godly man that ever walked on the face of the earth, if there was ever anyone who loved the Father and who had a revelation and a relationship with the Father, it had to be Jesus. I mean, the Father verified it. He was transfigured. Jesus was transfigured, and the Father's voice came out of heaven and said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And Jesus, not long before his crucifixion, he said, Father, glorify your name. And an audible voice came out of heaven saying, I have glorified it before, and I will glorify it again. They had more than enough ample proof to know that if anybody was ever a righteous person and was going to be accepted with the Father, it had to be Jesus. And even if they didn't understand about the resurrection, they could, if they would have been thinking more about Jesus than they were about themselves, then they could have said, at least Jesus is finally now free from all of the criticism, all of the unjust uh, opposition and persecution that came his way. At least the Father, who he loved so much and who he talked about constantly, is now going to receive him into heaven. And if they would have been thinking only about Jesus, even though they would have been grieved to see him crucified, they could have rejoiced saying, certainly he is finally being uh, compensated. He's finally in the presence of his father and he's experiencing joy and peace. And they could have found satisfaction and release and something to rejoice about. That's what Jesus is saying here. But you know what was actually happening? Sure, they were thinking about Jesus. They may have had questions about where he was, but the dominant thought with them was that I thought Jesus was the Messiah. I have pinned my I have pinned all of my hopes on him. Man, we thought he was going to establish a physical kingdom. We even asked if one of us could sit on his right hand and the other one on his left hand in the kingdom. And instead of a kingdom coming into being, instead of him overthrowing the Romans and ruling and establishing a physical kingdom, and instead of us having glory and honor, here we are running and hiding for our lives. They're going to be coming after us soon. And they could have had thoughts about, you know, we gave up our fishing business. We gave up our families, left our wife and kids, and we have been traveling for three and a half years because we felt like this was the Son of God, and now it looks like it didn't work. What's going to happen to us? What about us? What are we going to do? What's our next step? We've given up our whole life. We gave up our vocation. We've been ostracized. We shut off family. There's no way that we can go back into the family business after the things that we've done. See, these were the kind of thoughts that actually, you know, aggravated their grief and amplified their grief. Sure, I'm sure that there was some concern about Jesus, but they were more concerned about what is this doing to us? Our hopes were all hinging on him being the Messiah. If he's not the Messiah, what am I going to do? And that's the reason that their grief was so strong. And Jesus is saying this. He's bringing this out. If you loved me, 
more than you loved yourself. If you were thinking more about me, you could rejoice in this period of time instead of grieving. And brothers and sisters, did you know that even in death, even in the loss of a loved one, this is true, that if we really loved God and if we loved that person who died more than we loved ourselves, did you know that you can find a tremendous satisfaction in that and it just releases you from a lot of grief? You know, I had an example where there was actually a man who was one of my employees and he had uh, quit working for me. He wasn't working for me at the time that this happened, but he built a little pond in his backyard and uh, he had a one-year-old daughter who fell in that pond and drowned. And um, so anyway, it was a tragic situation. And so this man and his wife, uh, like I said, they weren't working for me at the time, but they were very good friends of ours. And so we went to the uh, funeral home and they weren't going to have a service. They were just having a viewing of the body. And we sat there and we stayed with them the whole time just to try and help them comfort them any way we could and we talked to them and they were just shattered over this whole thing and then all of the people who came by there was well over a hundred people might have been 200 people that came by and all of them that came by would say things like well you know this is so tragic this little girl isn't going to know what it's like to have her first day of school and the joy that goes along with that and they would talk about what it was like on their first day and we feel so sorry for you and then they'd say well she doesn't know what it's like to have her first or second birthday and uh, you know you aren't going to have all of these things and you aren't going to know what it's like when she goes out on her first date and to go to the prom and they were talking about all of the things that she was missing and I tell you it was a tear-jerking situation people were talking about this and I mean I was crying everybody was crying and the people came through, but then they didn't really leave. The people were just hanging around. And so finally, this man asked me, would I just do a little service in the chapel of this funeral home for these 100 or 200 people that were there? And I told him that I would. And of course, I mean, I only had like five minutes from the time he said that until the time I was supposed to be up there. And I was thinking, God, what can I say that will help these people? And I went back to thinking about how as they came through, that funeral home, and viewed the body of this little girl. Nearly all of the people who were grieving over this were talking about what she would miss in this life and talking about her missing her first birthday cake, how she would miss her first day of school, miss her prom, miss her first date, miss getting married, miss having children, missing all of these pleasures and joys of life, and she'd never know what it was like. And basically what I did was take this same principle that I'm talking about here. And I said, you know, it's not wrong to grieve over losing this child. And it's not wrong for us to think about that we'll never get to see her ride her first bike and go to her first day of school and do these things. I said, it's not wrong. But I said, remember that she is in the presence of the Lord. And I took some scriptures that talked about how children go directly into the presence of the Lord before the time that they, uh, you know, have the knowledge and that they directly rebel against God. They aren't held accountable for their sins and that they go directly into the presence of God. And so I showed that and I said, since that's true and since this little girl is in the presence of God, you know, all of the things that we're saying about that she won't know the joy of having her first bicycle and riding it and first day of school, etc., I said, you know what? She's not going to miss that stuff. 
I use the scripture that I've already used in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. The sufferings of this present world aren't even worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us. I said this little girl is in the very presence of Jesus, and she is looking straight into the face of God Almighty, and she is knowing perfect peace and perfect joy and perfect victory. And I said, you know, she's going to miss some things here on the earth, but she won't miss them. It's not going to be a problem. Plus, she will miss all of the hurt and the heartache that goes along with being rejected by friends and the and the rejection of her first puppy love and on and on. And she'll never know what it's like to be sick. And so through this, what I was basically doing is saying, you know what? It's important for us to recognize that it's not wrong to grieve over the loss of a loved one, but recognize that our grief is for us, not for the person. If the person who has died and gone on knows the Lord, then they are in the presence of God and they are being compensated in a way that we can't even dream of and they aren't missing a thing. It's us that's missing them. And it's not totally wrong for us to miss them, but to recognize that our grief really is selfish, that our grief really is because we are missing them, but they are being, I mean, just blessed beyond measure, blessed beyond imagination. If you could understand that, you know what? There still is a grief when you lose a person, but it just changes it. Some of the things that we call grief are actually grieving for ourselves. And again, I know that I'm speaking to all types of people, through this teaching. So please, if you don't fit into this category, don't take offense. I'm just trying to make this applicable to every person who's listening. But as I've dealt with people who've lost loved ones and uh, have just fallen apart, and as I've shared this truth with them, I've actually had some people that, you know what, was really causing them grief. Like I can remember a woman who was just, I mean, she was devastated. It was like there was nowhere to go on with her life. And as we got to talking, you know what really devastated her? It was the fact that she didn't know how she would ever provide for herself without her husband. She had never worked. She didn't have any skills. And the reason that she was really grieving wasn't so much because her husband had tragically died. It was because she was thinking, what's going to happen to me? How am I going to make it? How am I going to provide for these kids? I've got to do this alone. It was all centered around selfishness. It had very little to do with her love for her husband and her loss of him. Now, I'm saying that in some cases, you know, it might be a pure love for a person, and there still is going to be a degree of grief with that. But I'm saying that there are people that honestly, the reason they are grieving so much is because they are just thinking about themselves. They're thinking about their loss, not about the loss of the person who's gone on. And if that's so, I'm not saying that those aren't issues, but you can deal with that and it'll help you to deal with it if you'll recognize that it's actually selfish issues that you are dealing with. You can begin to start saying, well, God is going to supply my needs. God is going to take care of me. There's scriptures in Psalms chapter 27 that says when your father or mother forsake you, then the Lord will take you up. Now, when a person dies, that's not necessarily that person forsaking them, but it's the same principle, that one of your parents, when they forsake you, the Lord will take them up. And God did that for me specifically. When my father died, I turned to that scripture in Psalms 27, and God used that. And I used God as my father when I was growing up during the teenage years. 
And I grew up without any rebellion, without any of the problems that you see associated with a lot of teenage years. See, God can meet those needs, but you need to honestly evaluate and decide what is it that's causing you grief. Is it really a tragic situation where you have a pure, godly type of love for a person, or is a lot of the grief self-centered about where, where am I going? What's my identity going to be now? I've lived with this person for so long. What's going to happen to me? See, and if you understand that it's selfish, then you don't indulge it the way that you do. If it was a pure, godly type of grief where you were just honestly missing a person that you loved with all of your heart, there's a difference. And even if you have that godly type of love, understanding that a lot of the issues you're dealing with are actually selfish, it'll help you to deal with it. Again, I think I've used this example already, but I've talked, I remember one funeral not long ago where the woman was saying, boy, my husband checked out on me and he left me to handle all of these things on my own. And here he is in the presence of God and he's rejoicing. And of course, she was being facetious about this whole thing. You know, you know, she wasn't really upset, but she really had a true revelation that her husband was in the presence of God and that he had checked out and that he was being blessed. And because of that, it helped her to deal with it. She realized that, yes, she was going to miss him and there's no way to minimize that. But you know what? Uh, he was blessed. And so she wasn't grieving for him. And she decided she would go on with her life, and she's doing great, and God's blessing her, and God's prospering, and there is life after the death of a mate. I tell you, this is a powerful, powerful truth. And let me just amplify on this. I really believe that self-centeredness is at the bottom of all grief. Of course, there's unjustified grief that self-centeredness is what causes that. We are just so touchy. I've had people before that got mad at a pastor because the pastor didn't speak to them as he walked down the hall. And they just amplify that thing and get mad and say, this pastor treated me like dirt. And what they forget is that the pastor has a thousand other people in the church. And it may be somebody else had died. Maybe he was thinking about somebody besides them. Is it possible that someone else was the center of the universe instead of that individual? I mean, there's some people that this is the attitude that they have. Honestly, they think that they are the only people alive and that you need to drop everything and call them. You know, when this uh, terrorist attacks happened on the World Trade Center, we had one of our partners call in and get very mad because our ministry didn't call her to see how she was doing. Now, you know what? I honestly didn't even think of calling her. Now, I did put out tapes to minister to people who were confused and had questions, and I did that the day after the attacks. We put stuff on the website. We did think about people and know that there were questions and things, and we ministered to them, but I didn't think about calling every single person on my mailing list. I have 150,000 people on our mailing list, and I just didn't even think about calling every single person to see how they felt about this, and if there was something we could do to minister to them. And this woman called in and was irate because she had been a partner, and we didn't call her to ask how she was doing. And you know, when my wife and I heard about that, I thought, I can't even relate to this. I mean, it would have been nice if a ministry that I was partners with would have called me and asked, but I certainly wouldn't have expected it. I wouldn't have demanded it. And even if I would have thought about it, I wouldn't have been so upset to the point that I would have called in and have griped and complained. 
I mean, I just don't even think that way. And yet, here is a person who is so wrapped up into themselves that they didn't realize we have 150,000 people on our mailing list. They didn't realize that there were other people in the world beside them. They just thought that we should have called them. Now, I think that most of you would recognize that that's expecting a little too much. But you know what? There's a lot of people that that's exactly the way that they are. They think that the world owes them something, and if the pastor doesn't speak to them, they don't even have a thought that maybe the pastor is involved in somebody else's problem. Maybe the pastor himself has a problem. Maybe something is going on. They just think that if the pastor didn't roll over and uh, fall on their knees when they walk by and say, oh, you are in the building. We are so thankful. Well, then they just think that, boy, that person was rude to me. You know what? That is nothing but self-centeredness. The scripture says, Jesus said that we should die to ourself, that we should take up our cross and die daily. And there's a scriptural principle that, you know what, we aren't supposed to be in love with ourselves. It says over in Philippians chapter 2 that we are supposed to esteem others better than ourselves. We're supposed to have this mind in us, which was in Christ Jesus, who even though he was God, When he found himself in the flesh, he humbled himself and gave up all of his rights and privileges because he so loved the world, he so loved us, that he sacrificed himself. That's the true heart of a Christian, is to put other people above yourself and to love other people more than yourself. But in our society today, self is being promoted. We've had the me generation of the 60s that, you know, if it feels good, do it and take care of yourself and forget everybody else. We've gotten to a place where a minority controls the majority. And I'm not against helping people with handicaps and people with disabilities and stuff like that. But I'm saying that it's now gotten to where those people uh, throw their weight around and they make all of society pay, you know, millions and billions of dollars to accommodate them. And it doesn't matter what anybody else says. I'm the most important person on the face of the earth. Everybody's got to get their slice. That attitude is just running rampant in our world today. And when you get a person who is totally self-centered like this, it's like a dope addiction. You can never satisfy self. You can satisfy it for a moment, but then it'll crave something more, and it's got to be more, and it's got to be bigger. There are some of you listening that maybe thought that if you ever got a decent job, if you ever got a decent house, if you ever got married and had a family, that you'd be satisfied. And you know what? You aren't satisfied. you got to have a bigger house. you got to have a bigger car. Because once you get to indulging yourself and trying to pamper yourself, you can never satisfy self. The only way self can ever be dealt with is it's got to be denied. You've got to deny yourself, like Jesus said. And when a person denies themselves and gets to where they find their satisfaction and their pleasure in ministering to others and satisfying others, that's the only way that you can ever truly be happy. You can never indulge yourself and give yourself enough to make it truly happy. Happiness is in serving others. So Jesus said that we have to die to ourselves. You know, if I had a corpse in front of me right here, I could spit on the corpse. I could insult the corpse, I could ignore the corpse, I could hit the corpse, I could do all kinds of things, but if it's a corpse, it won't respond. You know why most of us respond the way we do? You know why when somebody cuts in front of you in traffic, it just irritates you and you're ready to pull out a gun and shoot? 
It's because self is so important. You don't recognize that other people have things going on. You know what? When you pull in front of people, I did this not long ago. I had somebody, I was passing a person. It was on a four-lane highway, so I didn't have to pass immediately and get over. But I was just gradually passing a person, and I was going very slow past them, and a person pulled up behind me on my bumper, and I mean was just right there. And because of that, I was looking at that in the rearview mirror. I pulled over in front of the car I had passed, and apparently I did it too soon because when I did, immediately that car behind me just slowed down and increased the distance. Now, see, that's something that I'm sensitive to. I recognize people cut in front of me, and I don't like it when they cut in front of me. And I think about all the reasons why they did this, and it's just because they're mean. And, you know, you you always take it in the worst uh, case when somebody does it to you. But when I did it to that person and saw that I had violated their space and they slowed down, you know, I, I just immediately thought, well, I didn't. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do it. Forgive me. And it was like mercy, mercy. <laughs> when you do it, it's mercy. But when somebody else does it, boy, you know why that is? Because we are so self-centered. We're always thinking of how ourself, you know, we were forced into this. It wasn't my fault. I had to, it was the circumstances. When somebody else does it, we don't consider anything except what they did to me. See, that's a self-centered attitude. And I'm using that example on myself because you don't ever get delivered of self. You don't ever get rid of it in the sense that it's not a factor. You have to deal with this every day for the rest of your life. You can't be delivered of self. But see, if you had a corpse here, it wouldn't respond. It wouldn't be offended if the pastor didn't say hi to him. If it's truly a corpse, it doesn't respond to things like that. If you truly have died to yourself the way that the Lord told us to, did you know a lot of things that offend people wouldn't offend them if they were really dead to themselves? Let me use a passage of Scripture to illustrate this further over in uh, Proverbs chapter 13. And in verse 10, you might want to read this or make a note uh, and look this up in your own Bible. Otherwise, you might not believe that this is Scripture. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 10 says, Only by pride cometh contention, but with the well-advised is wisdom. Now, the word contention here, if you look over in chapter 17, this is Proverbs 17, 14, it says, The beginning of strife is as when one letteth out water, therefore leave off contention, before it be meddled with. Proverbs 17, 14 saying, is saying that contention is the beginning of strife. So if you put that back in, in Proverbs 13, 10, it says, Only by pride cometh contention are the beginning of strife. So strife, contention, only comes through pride. Now I was ministering on this one time and I had a man say, he came up to me afterwards and he says, Look, he says, I've got a million problems, I'll admit it, but pride isn't one of them. He says, if anything, I have the lowest self-esteem of anybody in this auditorium. He says, I can't do anything. I'm always down on myself. And he says, I am a very angry man. And you're saying that pride is what causes this anger and this strife. It just can't be that way in my case. Well, what I had to do was redefine pride for him. See, we think pride is just thinking arrogance, thinking you're better than everybody else. But I believe that in its in its uh, simplest terms, and I haven't got time to go through scriptures and show you this, but this is my conclusion that I've come to through studying the Word. I believe that pride 
is just self-centeredness. And it doesn't matter if self is centered thinking you're better than everybody else, that's arrogance, or the opposite of that, self is thinking you're worse than everybody else, that is a very self-centered attitude. It's like having a stick. A stick has two opposite ends to it. One end of that stick could be arrogance, but the same stick, the opposite end, is low self-esteem. That's the same stick of self-centeredness, pride. Now, I can say this with conviction, because when I was uh, younger, I was so introverted that I couldn't talk to a person. I couldn't see a person on the street and say hi to them. I just was too introverted. I couldn't talk to a girl at all when I was in high school. I was so in, in uh, introverted and fearful. And I can tell you why I was that way. It was because I was constantly thinking about me. I was so worried about me and my acceptance with people. I was afraid that if I said something, I'd do something wrong, and it became a self-fulfilling prophecy. I remember that this girl, who was probably the most popular girl in our school, one of the prettiest girls in our school, a cheerleader, she came up to me one time and asked me how to spell a word. And I got so nervous because this popular pretty girl was talking to me that I just freaked out. And I, when she said, how do you spell this word? I said, I never did smell very good. <laughs> I meant to say spell very good, but I said smell very good. And there she went. She just started laughing, walked off laughing at me, humiliated me, which verified all of the fears that I had. And it just got worse. And it was those kind of things. And so... I'm saying that my timidness, my shyness, my introvertedness was all because I was so self-centered. And the way that I got delivered from it was when God called me to minister. I got up and I started ministering, but you know what? I just struggled. It was terrible for the first two years. It was so bad that every time I swore, I would never minister again because I embarrassed God and me both. It was pitiful. And finally, a man walked up to me after I had ministered one day. And he says, you know, you have some good things to share, some good revelation. And he says, if you ever got more concerned about the people you were ministering to than you were about yourself and what they thought of you, you could be a blessing. And man, that was God speaking to me. God gave me a revelation of why I was so fearful and so timid and shy. And it was because I was in love with myself and I was worried about what people were going to think about me. And yet God had put his love in my heart, and I actually got to a place that I began to be more concerned about people that I was ministering to than I was myself. And once I did that, this introvertedness, shyness is gone. I can talk to anybody all of the time, long times. I was delivered. Shyness is nothing but self-centeredness. So my point in making in saying that is to say that when the Scripture says, only by pride cometh contention, it means just exactly what it says. It is only when we are in love with ourself, when we are so self-centered, that we get contentious. Now, some people think, oh, no, it's my genes that make me this way. I was born with a temper. This is a trait of my family. No, it's not. The scripture says only by pride cometh contention. It didn't say that one of the causes of contention is pride. It didn't say that a leading cause for tap A personalities is pride. No, it says only. And in the Hebrew, that word only means only. It means that there is no other reason. 
The only reason we get angry isn't because of our genes, because of our hormones, our chemicals. It's not because of what people do to us. It's not an external thing, but rather it's an internal thing. It's the pride on the inside, the self-centeredness, the self-love on the inside that makes us angry. You cannot deal with every person outside. You can't control every person so that nobody's going to hit your hot buttons. You can't control every person in traffic, what they're going to do. You just can't do that. That is a wrong approach. The way to deal with anger in your life isn't to eliminate all of the aggravation, but rather it's to deal with what's on the inside of you that makes you angry. And according to this verse, it's pride. It's self-centeredness. That's what makes you angry. And if you can do that, then you know what? You can find out that even though people hate you and do things to you, you can still walk in love. Now, I'm not a perfect example. I haven't arrived, but I've left. And I can see this working in my life. I've actually had instances where I was a pastor of a church in Pritchett, Colorado, Some things happened. People got mad at me. They accused me of stealing money from the church. They accused me of committing adultery. They accused me of lying, stealing, things that I've never done. It was just terrible. And I remember I went in and talked to this one elder about it, and he yelled and screamed at me. But you know what? I honestly was more concerned about him than I was about myself. I'm not saying I do this every single time, but here is one example. I was more concerned about ministering to this man than I was about myself. I knew the things they were saying about me weren't true. So it didn't even affect me. And I honestly forgot it and went on my way. And every time I passed by this man's shop, I was in the habit of stopping and going in to see him. I was the pastor and he was one of the elders and I just had a habit of going in to see him. So about a week after this man had yelled at me and told me I was a liar and a thief and I'd committed adultery and stole money and all of this stuff. Um, I I was driving by his place of business and um, I pulled over and stopped. And I asked Jamie, my wife, if she wanted to go in with me. And she said, no way, I'm staying out here in the car. So I went in to see this guy. And anyway, he was cold towards me. And there was just no friendliness at all. And I tried to visit with him, and he just didn't want to visit. And so anyway, within just a few minutes, I came back to the car. And I told my wife, I said, you know, something's wrong with this guy. This guy wasn't friendly to me the way that he usually is. Something's bothering him. And she just looked at me, and I said, no, honest, I can tell something's bothering him. And she had to remind me of him accusing me of lying and committing adultery and stealing money from the church, etc. I had forgotten it. Now, I'm not saying I do that every time, but I'm saying it's possible to live like that to where you actually are more concerned about somebody else than you are yourself. And if you do that, you know, it's impossible to be angry at them. I had zero anger at this man because I didn't take offense. I I wasn't that concerned about myself. I've had one of the nation's most uh, popular Ministers, most well-known ministers come out and say that I'm a cult, just like Jim Jones, that it's the slickest, deceptive cult that that they have ever seen in their life. And you know what? I never took offense at that. I have ministered with this person on the stage since then. I've sent them offerings. I've blessed them. And I receive a lot from their ministry. I refer people to them all the time. And some people say, how could you do that? You know why? Because I've dealt with myself. I hadn't conquered it. I don't think you ever get to where it's over 
But I've started dealing with myself, and honestly, I just love this person. And I don't know why they hate me the way that they do, but I don't hate them. I don't have to get angry. You know, I've told people often when they come and they get offended and stuff, and they just start dropping hints. They kind of turn the cold shoulder and stuff. I've told people before. I said, you know what? Nobody's going to rent space in my mind. What I mean by that is I'm not going to be guessing at what your actions mean. You aren't going to be able to drop hints. If you're mad at me, I've told my staff this. If you get mad at me, you're going to have to come tell me because I am not going to guess. I am not going to stay up at night wondering, what did they mean by that? What do they think? I just don't do that. Man, I am not that touchy-feely. I do not have to have you turn flip-flops, somersaults every time I walk in the room to make you to make me think that you still like me. You know, I'm just going to assume the best. And I am not... Uh, a very sensitive person like that. And what that is, that's God has done some things in my life where I've dealt with myself. Again, you don't ever get to where you've just killed self and it's over. As long as you're breathing, you are going to have a tendency to think about yourself more than you think about other people. It's normal. It's natural. But you know what? You can deal with it. When you came into this earth, you were 100% self-centered. You didn't care that your mother had been up all night long in labor and that she hadn't gotten any sleep. You didn't care that nobody else had gotten any sleep. You woke them all up in the middle of the night crying. You wanted to be fed and taken care of. You take a baby to church, that baby will throw a fit and cry and interrupt the entire service and not even realize it. Maybe some people's eternal security future could be in the balance. You don't care. You, you want something, you just cry and you get it. You know, that's not wrong for a week old baby, for a year old child or something. But the problem is when you are 30, 40, 50, 60 years old and you still think that you are the center of the universe, that's where problems begin to come in. You know, it is one of the responsibilities of a parent to train their child out of self-centeredness. We're supposed to teach them. This doesn't come natural. It's something that has to be learned. It's acquired. You have to teach your children that it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. It's more fun to be a blessing to others than it is to have others always serving you. We're supposed to teach our children that you are not the center of the universe. Everybody is not here to serve you. But it's in, it's in laying your life down, losing your life, that you really find out what life is all about. It's in giving that you truly receive. See, we're supposed to teach our children this. And yet most parents are so self-centered themselves that when a child throws a fit in a store, you know, or something, saying, I want this piece of candy, and the parent says, no, you can't have this candy. You'll have to wait until after we eat. And they say, no, I want it. And if the kid is willing to make an absolute fool of themselves and fall on the ground and scream and holler and yell, most parents are so self-centered themselves that instead of doing what's right for the child, they'll look around and they'll think, boy, everybody's going to look at me and say, look at this brat. What's that mother going to do? That the average parent will just give the child what they want because of their own self-centeredness, thinking, I don't want everybody to be looking at me. And because of that, it actually reinforces this self-centeredness. It teaches the child that you can get anything you want if you're willing to throw a fit. And so... You grow up 
And now you're an adult and you may not fall on the floor anymore and scream and cry and pound your fish, but fist. But now if your mate doesn't do what you want, you're going to turn the cold shoulder and you're going to pout. And you're going to make it so that when they walk in uh, after a day's work, they can feel the icicles in the air. I mean that there is just, you know what that is? That's an adult temper tantrum. And most adults, the reason for the anger, for the strife in them, isn't because of what's being done to them, but rather it's because of the self-centeredness that's on the inside. And I know that this is diametrically opposed to the uh, take that most people have on what causes strife and anger, but I believe that it's true. That's exactly what the scripture here is saying. You can literally get to a place to where you live so much for other people that you don't even notice a wrong suffered. That's what the Living Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 when it's talking about God's kind of love. Doesn't even notice a wrong suffered. Most of us notice a wrong suffered very quickly because we are so into tune. We are so in tune with ourself and we've got rights. But you know what? That's not the way to do it. I've had married couples come to me and say, but I've got rights. They can't treat me this way. And, you know, that's the reason for the strife. It's this pride, self-centeredness. You need to recognize when you get married, it's not a 50-50 thing. It's 100%, 100%. You're supposed to lay your life down for your mate. They are supposed to lay their life down for you, and that's the way that God intends for marriage to work. When you go to demanding your own rights and thinking about your own things, I can guarantee you that other person's going to rub you the wrong way. It's just inevitable, and it's not even done maliciously. It's just that the other person isn't going to be as concerned about you as you are. And so because of that, sometimes they will slight you. Sometimes things will happen. And you will read into it that they do it because they are mean and terrible. When the truth is they do it because they themselves are self-centered and they just don't think about you every waking moment of the world. You know, you can deal with that selfishness on the inside and you'll find out that things won't bother you the way that they did. When I was in the sixth grade, my sixth grade teacher did an experiment where he heated a metal gas can on a Brunson burner. And, of course, he got it hot. When when air is hot, it occupies a higher volume. And so while this metal gas can was red hot, he put the lid on it and sealed it tightly. And then he set the can over to the side on, on his desk in front of the class, and he went on with his teaching. Now, I was sitting right in front of that can, and he was doing this as an experiment to show that what happens is as the can cooled off, then the air on the inside would compress. Cold air occupies less volume than hot air. And so what would happen is it would form a partial vacuum inside of that can. And as he went on and taught, all of a sudden that can, as it cooled off, it began to pop and crackle. It actually fell off of the desk onto the floor and it was just like somebody was beating it with their fist or with a hammer and that can was just crushed by natural atmospheric pressure. And, you know, it's the same pressure that you would normally have. But it crushed that can, not because the pressure and the atmosphere was so strong, but because there was a vacuum on the inside. And, you know, that's exactly what I'm trying to illustrate here. There are just natural things that go on in this world. Not everybody is going to think you are the greatest person on the face of the earth, and they aren't supposed to. To your surprise, you are not the center of the universe. This world does not revolve around you. 
And it's natural that people are going to rub you the wrong way. It's natural that somebody's going to cut you off in traffic. Somebody's going to do something because they just are thinking about themselves instead of thinking about you. Those things are natural. And you know what? If there wasn't a vacuum on the inside, if we weren't so self-centered, all wrapped up in ourself, there wouldn't be this vacuum. A person who is wrapped up in themselves makes a very small package. And you know what? If you are self-centered, then you're small on the inside. When you begin to think about other people more than you think about yourself, then you'll find out that will equalize the pressure on the outside. You won't even notice all of these things. It won't crush you and destroy you the way that a person with a vacuum on the inside of them will. So anyway, there's so much more. I've got a tape on this entitled Self-Centeredness, the Source of All Grief that goes into much more teaching on this than what I've been doing here because I spent a lot of this time talking about grief and how to deal with it. But the principle is here that, you know what, self-centeredness causes some people to grieve over things that you shouldn't be grieving over. And even if you have a legitimate grief, then it'll be exasperated by the uh, self-centeredness. And so you can diminish your grief. You can diminish these things by just getting rid of this self-centeredness. Now, that's easier said than done. Like I said, we all came into this world self-centered, and it's not easy to get out. It takes a miracle of God to change that self-centered attitude. And the way that it happened with me was March the 23rd, 1968. Uh, It was just a miracle of the Holy Spirit, but the Lord, in a moment's period of time, showed me what a total hypocrite I was and how I was living for myself and how everything I had done was just done to glorify myself. And I was manipulating and using people to um, satisfy myself. And when I saw it, I repented. I mean, I repented. I spent an hour and a half or two hours repenting, asking God to forgive me. I just didn't realize how self-centered, how selfish, how ungodly I was. And when I got through repenting, to my surprise, God just poured his love out on me in a tangible way. And so the way that I began to deal with self-centeredness, I'm not over it. Nobody ever gets over it. You just have to deal with it. But the way I started dealing with it and when the, the, you know, the death blow was struck was when I saw how self-centered I was. I repented and I just asked God to forgive me. God poured his love in me and I literally got God's love flooding through me in that place that used to be occupied all by self-love. I took myself off the throne of my life and I put God on there. And that's the only way that I have ever begun to deal with self-centeredness. I still deal with it. I've had people come up and say before, well, man, I receive what you're saying, cast self-centeredness out of me. I can't do that. The only way you can get rid of self-centeredness is to die. And then your soul will be changed and it'll become perfect. But as long as you're in this life, you just have to deal with it. You know, Jim Irwin was one of the astronauts that walked on the moon. And I was in Vietnam when the moonwalk took place, and so I missed that. And I've always been interested in this, trying to find out things. And when I met Jim Irwin, we swapped books, and I sat down, and I was with him a couple of different times on television programs, and I would just, you know, pump him for all this information. And I was so excited. I thought that the technology that the... Uh, space program used to land men on the moon was just perfect. 
I thought that, you know, they had an exact like an X on the moon and they landed right on top of that X. I was just impressed. Well, as I got to talking to him, I found out that that's not the way it was at all. They actually just blasted off and threw that capsule towards the moon. And then every, um, well, I forgot what it was, every 30 seconds or every six minutes or something, every 10 minutes, I guess is what it was. Every 10 minutes, they had a course correction on the way to the moon. I think it was a four-day trip, and every 10 minutes for four days, they had a course correction. And he said that sometimes that capsule was going nearly 90 degrees opposite from the direction it should be going. Sometimes it was just a fraction of a degree that they had to correct, but sometimes it was 90 degrees off. The truth is that they wobbled towards the moon. They didn't just go straight towards it. And then he told me that they had a 500-mile-long landing strip picked out for the lunar module to land on. And when they land, they landed, they were within five feet of missing that 500-mile-long runway. That's amazing. And as I was listening to this, the Lord spoke to me about this self-centeredness. And he says, you know, that's the way it is in dealing with yourself. You don't ever... It's never just you make one decision and boom, you're on track and you never have to make a course correction. He says, but instead, you just have to blast off. There has to be a starting place where a person understands these truths about not loving yourself above God and everything else. And you have to make a commitment and head towards that selfless lifestyle. And then there will be a course correction every 10 minutes for the rest of your life. You know, some of you might be listening to this in a car. And and you may be receiving and saying, God, I receive this. I I make you my Lord. I want to love you and other people more than I love yourself. And you could be making a commitment with all of your heart. And within 10 minutes, you're going to have an opportunity for somebody to pull in front of you, somebody to do something, and for you to say, you know what? You go ahead. I'll prefer you above myself. Some of you may be listening to this at work. By the time you get home, you're going to have an opportunity to prefer your mate above yourself. They're going to ask you to do something that self wouldn't want to do, but you'll honor them above yourself. There will be a course correction every 10 minutes for the rest of your life. But you need to recognize this principle. It's not what's outside that makes you angry. It's what's inside that makes you angry. And when it comes to dealing with grief, some grief is just totally unjustified. It is not legitimate grief. It's just because we are so selfish that we are grieving. There are some things that is, uh, they are legitimate things to grieve over, and yet you can minimize the grief if you'll recognize that, you know what, this grief is really uh, selfish in a lot of ways. And if you'll deal with that and look at it that way, it'll help you to deal with it and come through it. I just pray that God takes these four teachings that I've done on the subject of grief and uses this to help you to not only cope, not only survive, but to thrive. There is life after death. There is victory after defeat. God can bring good out of evil, and it all is dependent upon your choices. I believe that these teachings will help you to make the right choice and to go on. The best is yet to come.